Okay, so we're going to go through uh, quickly here, Revelation 2 through 5. I'm just trying to map out how we're going to get through uh, the rest of this book here before the end of the school year. Okay, so we're going to kind of skip over the seven churches, not that there isn't some really good meaty stuff we could talk about in there, but we're going to kind of move on so we can get through the seals and the trumpets and the, the bull sequence. Okay? And we're going to concentrate kind of on the climax here of these chapters coming up to the center or the middle of the throne. Really significant um, sentence there. Okay, so I mentioned uh, these three books, and it's not possible for me every time I say something to tell you this is where I, I learned it, okay? And I feel like I need to give credit to people that, uh, that books where I read some of this information. So I'll just again tell you, um, here are some, some good references if you want to read about this further. And for those of you that weren't here, I'm just going to quickly, because I think it's so important as we have a kind of a foundation or an approach to Revelation, uh, just in one minute to mention what we did last time, which is Revelation, you have to be a rereader, okay, which means you have to go over and over, look at things from different angles, see the way the book is organized, and try to fit the, the different sequences together. So it really requires um, rereadership. Okay, the other very important one, since Revelation is made up of the Old Testament, that we not just identify where something is found in the Old Testament, but that we take that reference seriously. We go back, we read the context in the Old Testament. What does it mean there? And then we take that meaning to Revelation. That's, that will be very important. And then uh, also to realize that there's more than one acting subject in the book of Revelation. In other words, God doesn't do everything. Okay, there's a dragon, there are beasts. There are forces that are opposed to God, and it's important that we, we see those as acting subjects as well. Okay, and uh, what I mentioned last time, which is that the center of the book, as uh, many different interpreters have seen, are chapters 12 through 14, which describe the war in heaven, and some really uh, the, the foundation, uh, really the center of the book, and that the, the bowls, seals, and the trumpets uh, revolve around and expand on issues in the cosmic conflict, that we, we see it um, kind of in that sense. And the other is, and I won't go through the evidence for this today, we did that a little bit last time, that we not really look at these as, okay, now we are chronologically marching through the seals, those finished, now we chronologically are moving through the trumpets, those finished, and now we are chronologically moving through the bulls. And last time I mentioned all of the, or some of the markers that suggest these are overlapping rather than just on a continuum. And I mentioned last time how they all have the same ending point. So there's, there's forward momentum. It's not just that they're recovering the same uh, information, okay, but there's overlap. Okay, so there's momentum, forward momentum and overlap. And I suggested maybe the best way to think of it is a, a symphony where we have a theme. The theme of Revelation is the cosmic conflict and the issues around the cosmic conflict, and that theme keeps getting repeated. Yes, it moves forward, it ends, there's a climax, it finishes, okay, but as we go through each theme, we get a different variation, different understanding. That's, for me, the most helpful way to think about the book. Okay, so just a little bit about the seven churches. We get an introduction to the seven churches here in the first chapter, okay, where John turns around to see who is talking to me, and I saw seven gold lampstands, and among them there was what looked like a human being wearing a robe that reached to his feet and a gold band around his chest. 
Okay, and so very often in Revelation, if we're wondering what something means, we just keep reading on. And a few verses later, here is the secret meaning of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands. So the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have Jesus here standing among the seven lampstands, which are the churches. Okay, and so of course then we move into chapter two and we have a description here of the seven churches. So just a question, what are the seven churches? And get a lot of different interpretations. Are they, does it primarily refer to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia Minor, what is now Western Turkey? Okay, are these, or does this refer to seven churches that kind of symbolize the 2,000 years from the cross until now? Um, or could we see this as a kind of a timeless representation of positive and negative attributes of all God's friends? Quotes the church since the cross. Or do we need to choose just one? And just on this last point, um, you know, we associate the Church of Laodicea as kind of the end time church, and I think we could maybe make a good case for that. But does that mean there has never been a Laodicean individual until just very recently? Um, don't you think uh, that at any time, when we look at the church, not as a corporate body, but you know, people that are loyal to God, that are God's friends, there are always a mixture of people that have qualities that could be found in, in the seven churches, and some need rebuking at all different times. So I think, I think we could say that that is true, but I think we could also say that, yes, there were churches in this time, that the message was delivered around. So I don't think we necessarily need to pick just one meaning. And just as an example of a prophecy that could be taken at different times, how about this one in Isaiah 7.4? Remember, Isaiah talks to King Ahaz, and he tells him, well, then the Lord himself will give you a sign. A young woman who is pregnant will have a son and will call him Emmanuel. Okay, now, um, so this was a sign to King Ahaz. Now, was a child born? Yes. One chapter later in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 8, Mrs. Isaiah had a baby, and it was a sign to King Ahaz. Okay, does that mean that this doesn't also apply to someone else much greater that would come later on? Of course, Jesus Christ. So again, it's one prophecy. It had an immediate fulfillment, and it had a fulfillment later. Okay, so things can have meanings that can apply um, at different times and still be um, consistent. Okay, I'll just point maybe just to one church. It's just a little, maybe evidence for this also applying to the church in that time. There was a city of Laodicea. Of course, you're familiar with the words here. You say, I am rich and well off, I have all I need, but you do not know how miserable and pitiful you are. You are poor, naked, and blind. So they say we are rich. The reality is, of course, in a spiritual sense, that they are poor, naked, and blind. And what is known about Laodicea is that it was a very rich um, city in that time. Okay, so from different letters, the, uh, uh, um, this is about uh, just the wealth of Laodicea, that among the various garments woven in Laodicea was a tunic. Okay, and I'm not sure how you pronounce the name of that tunic. But it was widely known that this, so widely known that the tunic at, the, at this council in 451, the council was actually named after the wealthy tunic that was made in Laodicea at that time. And uh, this reference here, 
from uh, Tacitus, who was a historian that wrote about history of Rome from AD 14 to 68 um, in, a, in a volume called Annals. And there was apparently a large earthquake in 60 AD. Okay, and Tacitus wrote that Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and wealth and with no help from the Romans. Okay, so this was a wealthy city. It actually did fit pretty well with the description that John gave of people who saw themselves as wealthy and not realized the, the poverty that they were in. And interesting, Laodicea was widely known for its medical school in that time. And they had all kinds of ointments and, and things that you can read about. Two of the most famous were ointment from spice nard for the ears and an eye salve that was made from some sort of a powder and mixed with oil. Okay, that's kind of interesting because especially when we read about Laodicea, the advice is buy also some ointment to put on your eyes so that you may see. Okay, this kind of would have a neat application to what they were actually doing. And the meaning here is there's something uh, spiritual that you're understanding. You're not seeing with your spiritual eyes. Okay, but um, I want to make just one point about the seven churches. And this is something I find kind of neat that there is an invitation to the seven churches. I think we can, we can see ourselves as part of um, the Church of Christ. And we want to see ourselves as much as we can in these seven churches and see the rebukes as applying to us where it does apply. Okay, but there's an invitation to the seven churches. And we can follow this through in terms of a, a door. Okay, in, in Philadelphia, the Church of Philadelphia, which was a loyal church, they have an open door. Okay, this is the message from the one who is holy and true. He has the key that belonged to David, and when he opens the door, no one can close it, and when he closes it, no one can open it. I know what you do. I know that you have a little power. You have followed my teaching and have been faithful to me. I have opened a door in front of you, which no one can close. Okay, so there's an open door for the Church of Philadelphia. Now, the next church is Laodicea, and it's obvious that uh, the door is closed because... Jesus says, listen to them. I stand at the door and knock. Well, the door has to be closed if he's standing there knocking. If any hear my voice and open the door, I will come into their house and eat with them, and they will eat with me. Okay, and it would be a, a good sermon here just to talk about the methods of God, not knocking the door over, okay, but knocking okay, in kind of a non-coercive way. But we have a door that's opened. Now the door is closed. And if we just keep reading on a few verses into Revelation 4, it's important that we see this uh, throne room scene as uh, something that comes out of the words to the seven churches. And there's at least two good markers of continuity. Okay, notice at this point I had another vision and saw an open door in heaven. Okay, we've got an open door, closed door, now the door is open. Okay, that would be one mark of continuity. The other is that the voice that sounded like a trumpet, which I heard, heard speaking to me before. This is the same voice of Jesus in Revelation 1. That same voice said to me, come up here. Okay, so Jesus would tell the story about the seven churches, and now the same voice says, come up here and, uh, and let me show you something. And of course, uh, the description here is, is really interesting. There in heaven was a throne with someone sitting on it, his face gleamed like such precious stones as jasper and carnelian. And all around the throne there was a rainbow, the color of an emerald. Okay, try to, try to picture all of this in your mind as, as we read through it. And each one of the four living creatures had six wings, and they were covered with eyes inside and out. 
Okay, when we went through Isaiah, um, I talked about how this, this comes directly from Isaiah, six-winged creatures. And day and night, they never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. The four living creatures sing songs of glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. When they do so, the 24 elders fall down before the one who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They throw their crowns down in front of the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were given existence and life. Okay, so who do you imagine is on the throne? It's obviously God. Okay, but um, is it the Father? Is it the Son? Okay, who does the images here? Does it seem to be describing? Okay, well, we have to read on, but first, maybe a, a couple of questions. Who are the four living creatures? And who are the 24 elders? And I think here we want to um, always resist as much as possible the emphasis just to, uh, to decode. And we want to, when we read, read Revelation, to really place theology as primary, okay, rather than trying to decode to identify a timeline or even to identify specific um, individuals. Okay, is there a theology that we can make out of four living creatures and 24 elders? And by theology, I mean an understanding about God. Is there a meaning to this, or are we primarily invited to say, hmm, who are those four individuals? Who are the 24 individuals? Okay, well, I think there's a, there's a theology in this. Okay, but like always, let's just keep reading, and let's see if, if we get some understanding. So then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? Now that is interesting. You know, we have God in all of his power sitting on the throne, getting praise, holy, 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 people casting crowns down at him. And does this just seem strange that God is holding the throne, or is holding the scroll, and that the question is asked, who is worthy to break the seals? Doesn't it almost seem a little embarrassing? If you were sitting there, wouldn't you want to say, well, God, you're worthy. You open it up. Um, I was trying to think of an example. Would it seem strange if uh, Dr. Werner is here, who's, who gives you all of your cardiology and EKG and all of that, and he's holding an EKG in his hand, and someone were to say, well, uh, who's good enough to read the EKG? And, well, no one could be found in this room that was adequate to read the EKG. There's Dr. Werner holding it in his hand. It kind of struck me that way. I said, well, the answer is obvious. God is worthy to open the scroll. Okay? But that's not what happens. No one in heaven or on earth or on under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it as God holds it in his hand. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Hey, you just wouldn't intuitively think that that's the way the, the story would go with God himself holding the scroll. So the question, who is worthy? And John is weeping. And several commentators have brought in another voice to this. Okay, and uh, Adela uh, Collins in the book uh, The Apocalypse said that the first four verses of chapter five imply that the heavenly council is faced with a serious problem. So we have not just the voice, holy, 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 but we have another voice, uh, perhaps uh, offstage, that is challenging God's holiness and worthiness. 
And she goes on, in the context of the apocalypse as a whole, it is clear that the problem facing the heavenly council is the rebellion of Satan, which is paralleled by rebellion on earth. Chapter 5 presupposes the old story of Satan's rebellion against God, which leads to the fall of creation. Okay, and we'll talk about the scroll next time because we'll go through the seals. But I think there is a conflict here. This is not just a nice heavenly scene, all is wonderful and everyone is praising God. There's a problem. Okay, and that problem gets to the root at the worthiness of uh, being able to open the scroll. But of course, a solution presents itself. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. And this could uh, accurately be translated as the violently slaughtered lamb. But it was now standing in the center or in the middle of the throne. And the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Now, what is the meaning here? Um, is the meaning that a more qualified individual than Dr. Werner stood up and said, well, I can read that EKG. Okay, does Jesus replace the Father on the throne? Um, well, I wouldn't want to take that meaning. Um, I think what is being described here is the perception of who God is, that when we really get down to the heart, the middle, the center of the throne, that the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, who revealed God to be self-sacrificial love personified in Jesus, that that understanding is, is what is being described here. Okay, and if we believe that to be true, we just read on what happens. That now, after this, they sing a new song. Again, does that mean literally now the different tune played in heaven? Uh, don't you think this means there's a new understanding, a new song? You are worthy to take the scroll and to break open the seals. For you were killed, and by your death you, you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. And now look what happens. Again I looked. Now remember, before we just have 24, or 4 and 24 around the throne. But now when John looks... I heard angels, thousands and millions of them. They stood around the throne, the four living creatures and the elders, and, and sang in a loud voice, The Lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power, wealth, wisdom, and strength, honor, glory, and praise. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, in the world below. I mean, this is really a, an incredible effect here. And in the sea, all living beings in the universe. And they were singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Notice it's not just uh, Jesus here. It's, it's kind of Jesus' representation of God that brings honor and glory to the Godhead as a whole. So what we're seeing here, I think the meaning is really the amplification of praise that we see when, when Jesus is really perceived as the heart, center truth of who God is. So initially, again, just for review, we have God being praised, but he's being praised because he's powerful. He's being praised because he's creator. And God should be praised for those things. Okay, and here he's just those surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders. But that no one is worthy to open the scroll, again, there's a challenge to God's worthiness. But then the violently slaughtered lamb 
comes onto the scene. That's who God is. Okay, and that is the key point. That's the center of the throne. And now there's a new song, and now we have millions and everything above and below. Okay, so this, I think, is, if I had to just point to one thing that is the really the center truth of Revelation, I think it all really hinges on this, the heart of the throne room scene that gets deeper and deeper. And who is there? Who is really sitting on the throne? Okay, it's the violently slaughtered lamb. Not words that just identify us with, oh, it's Jesus. Okay, but the violently slaughtered lamb tells us about the character of the one on the throne who would lay down his life, who would forgive his enemies, who would hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes and fishermen and, and all of that. That's really the, the center truth. And that is what leads to this amplification of praise. Okay, so um, again, the, the contested throne idea. Okay, from Sigby's book, according to the War in Heaven theme, the throne of God is contested territory. John's vision of the throne and of the one who sits on the throne recalls the initiation of the conflict and the ambition expressed by the adversary. And we can have lots of lots of different places. Maybe the best one here is in Isaiah 14. Okay, if we're allowed to apply this to Satan, which I, I think, um, which I like to take that interpretation where you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of the assembly on the uttermost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, so the, the lofty aspirations to actually sit on the throne. Okay, and so it's, it's just really remarkable. You read Philippians about how God came down in Jesus all the way down to dead in a tomb. That The aspirations of Satan is just to go up higher and higher and God in his victory went the opposite direction, went down to the very bottom. Okay, the other uh, significant passage in the Old Testament in reference to uh, Lucifer and his rebellion is Isaiah 28. Okay, where the description here before the rebellion is that I ordained and appointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. You had access to the holy mountain of God and walked among or in the middle of the stones of fire. Again, there's that middle center place that before the rebellion uh, that uh, Lucifer dwelled in the very center, the very heart, uh, the presence of God. Hey, so it's just so many times here when we went through Daniel, uh, I believe describing the satanic powers as growing strong enough to attack the army of heaven. Again, that would not be in a literal battle. The stars themselves, it threw some of them to the ground and trampled on them. It even defied the prince of the heavenly army. That would be Jesus. So this is describing a, a spiritual warfare. Okay, again, and the issue really is worship. Someone else wants to be enthroned. Okay, that John would say the whole world is under the rule of the evil one. And Paul, here's a, here's a good verse in terms of worship in the throne room scene in 2 Thessalonians, that the wicked one will oppose every so-called God or object of worship and will put himself above them all. He will even go in and sit down in God's temple and claim to be God. Okay, temple, a literal building. No, we are the temple of God. This is to be enthroned in our minds. And uh, really sobering here that as we read on to Revelation that everyone worshipped the dragon. Okay, so the, the issue really centers on um, worship. Who are we worshiping? Okay, so if we, uh, if we read in Revelation, we have some who follow the beast and some who follow the lamb. And notice that the followers of the, the lamb, 
that's the middle is emphasized again. So in describing the 144,000, the lamb who is in the center or the middle of the throne will be their shepherd. So there are some people who are just locked into that kind of a God. And he will guide them to the springs of life-giving water. Okay? Um, so again, from Sigmi's book, The Slaughtered Lamb, in Revelation 5, reveals the character of God in the context of the cosmic conflict. Okay, now, followers of the deceiver. Um, you know, generally, I think when we think of people who maybe worship uh, Satan, or think of devil worship, you know, it's, it's always about Halloween and Ouija boards and things like that. But uh, really, when we consider that Jesus spoke these words to a very devout religious people who were reading their Bible, attending church, keeping the Sabbath, doing all kinds of good things, that he told those people in John 8 that you are the children of your father, the devil, and you want to follow your father's desires. Okay, so that the devil worship here, we, we need to make that a little uh, broader, and I wouldn't want to accuse anyone of that. But that Jesus' words to very religious people, he would accuse them of being children of your father or the devil. That's kind of sobering. And I think uh, that um, Satan's greatest attacks are not out against necessarily rebellious people, but it's at the church. It's at people really trying to understand who God is. Okay, And so the efforts here, here are to uh, really distort our picture of God, to really cause us to slowly move away from worshiping who God really is to a false image. Of God, And I think that's what the book of Revelation describes. So let me just give you one example of that in terms of the, the counterfeit. And we even call it the lamb-like beast. Okay, but just read this in Revelation 13, that the dragon gave the beast his own power, his throne, and his vast authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have been fatally wounded. And you know, the, the in the Greek... This is exactly the same wording as the violently slaughtered lamb that we have in Revelation 5. Precisely the same. It is the violently slaughtered lamb, the lamb-like beast. But the wound had healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. Everyone worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast also saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? So, yes, I think we can make some applications to our time about the lamb-like beast. But I think we want to make sure that as a biggest application that we understand the methods here are imitation. Okay, the imitation is of the violently slaughtered lamb. There's someone else who appears as the violently slaughtered lamb. And so we have to, we have to kind of uh, see what is the difference. We have two that are claiming here the title of violently slaughtered lamb. Okay, and so again, just uh, the, here in, in the Greek, just to say that this phrase here, the, the verb to butcher, to slaughter, to maim. It's the same in Revelation 5 and in Revelation 13. Okay, so at uh, some risk here, I will just describe maybe a little bit how, how I have see some of this imitation taking place. So we said the violent slaughter lamb reveals the character of God in the context of the cosmic conflict. Well, I think uh, what we see in the church after... Uh, Constantine is a dramatic change. You know, the first few hundred years of the Christian church, the Christian church was giving. You know, it was the blood of the martyrs that was the seed of the church. The church was self-sacrificial. And after Constantine, we have a very dramatic change where the church, instead of looking like Jesus, looking like Calvary, suffering, loving enemies, that kind of thing, that the church took on power 
and the church tried to recruit Christians, okay, not by love and presenting the truth in love, but instead by methods of persecution. And it was even felt uh, that, yes, we could torture our enemies if it would, quote, save them and bring them into the church. Okay, these are not the methods of Jesus, of course, who laid down his life for enemies. The methods were power, force, and coercion. And how harmful here to go off into battle with a, a cross on the shield. You know, that we're representing Jesus here as we come with swords to kill. That is the polar opposite, of course, of, of the picture of God that Jesus came to reveal. Okay, so there was, I would say, just a, a grand uh, deception that Christian no longer became associated with Christ-like, but more truths. And, uh, you know, getting people to um, uh, agree on a certain number of doctrines. But love, love for enemies, that kind of message that's so redundant in the Gospels, okay, that we just see personified at the cross, was completely rejected. It became all about power. And I think uh, even to our uh, current day, that uh, an issue of this is blending nationalism and patriotism with the cross. Okay, and uh, the last time I described this, I don't think I did a very good job because uh, some of you weren't very happy with me, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to describe it differently this time. Some of you thought I was a liberal Democrat, and I shouldn't bring that into a Bible study. So I'm just gonna tell you a little bit my story on this. Uh, I was uh, for a long time I would say very conservative, Republican, patriotic. Okay, very much had a, a nationalistic view and had no idea that in my mind I really had fused that very much with my religion. Okay, and it was really only um, um, maybe seven or eight years ago that began to see that that it was actually a form of idolatry that we call nationalistic idolatry. And the danger here is when we blend nationalism with the cross, we blend two kingdoms that are really incompatible. Okay, the kingdoms of the world always use force, power, coercion. Okay, the kingdom of Christ doesn't use those methods. Okay, so I can say to all of you honestly now, I'm, I'm not a Republican or Democrat. I don't know what I believe uh, politically or what party. Okay, so this is not an endorsement of either political party. But what I would say is when we think about right wing or left wing, okay, what do we want to identify with? Okay, how do you like this play on words? Foot washing. Okay, can we identify with that uh, political party? Okay, that's what I'm saying. We, we want to be part of a kingdom that is of a different world. And so if you want to read just a great book, this is the book that kind of opened my mind uh, to all of this. It's uh, Greg Boyd's book, uh, The Myth of a Christian Nation. It's really a book about God's character, but it talks about this issue of how we have so thoroughly blended nationalism, patriotism, with the cross and how damaging that is. And here's the, here's the compelling story that initially opened my eyes. Okay, he describes his experience in a large church. Okay, I happened to visit a July 4th worship service at a certain megachurch. At center stage in this auditorium stood a large cross next to an equally large American flag. The congregation sang some praise choruses mixed with such patriotic hymns as God Bless America, the climax of the service centered on a video of a well-known Christian military general giving a patriotic speech about how God had blessed America and blessed its military troops. Triumphant military music played in the background as he spoke. The video closed with a scene of a silhouette of three crosses on a hill with an American flag waving in the background. Majestic, patriotic music now thundered 
Suddenly, four fighter jets appeared on the horizon, flew over the crosses, and then split apart. As they roared over the camera, the words, God bless America, appeared on, front, uh, on the screen in front of the crosses. The congregation responded with roaring applause, catcalls, and a standing ovation. I saw several people wiping tears from their eyes. Indeed, as I remained frozen in my seat, I grew teary-eyed as well, but for entirely different reasons. I was struck with horrified grief. Thoughts raced through my mind. How could the cross and the sword have been so thoroughly fused without anyone seeming to notice? How could Calvary be associated with bombs and missiles? How could the kingdom of God be reduced to this sort of violent nationalistic tribalism? Has the church progressed at all since the Crusades? Um, I think there is something very important about this, relevant for our time. And I think it's important whenever we think about the kingdom, whenever we think about whatever it is that we call Christian, that it look like this. Okay, Whatever we call it, it looks like this. It looks like suffering, even giving of yourself for the good of another. It just looks like what Jesus did on the cross. Whatever we call Christian, it looks like that. So kingdoms of the world, they do all kinds of things. Okay, And uh, some of those things are good. But our kingdom looks like that. And I think anything other than that, we're getting on dangerous ground. Dear Father, thank you so much for uh, this incredible scene in Revelation that points us to really the, the center truth, the heart of all truths, revealed at the cross about the kind of person you are. Help each one of us to uh, more fully latch on to that center truth and to transform us from within. Amen.